Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hey, this is Jeremy. Before we get started, I have a request. In a few weeks, we're going to do a special episode where we take your questions. So what do you want to know? Send us a voice memo to bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks. Every day, there's a little GameStop in the making. It's like earthquakes. A little earthquake is no different from a large earthquake. It's just, of course, the large earthquake is bigger, but it's fundamentally the same mechanism. It's the same story. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Jeremy Elshan, the editor of MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. So as it happens, we're recording this on Groundhog Day, when we rely on a furry little rodent to tell us how long winter is going to last. Are all predictions of the future this absurd? Maybe. But some scientists and economists think we actually can read clues in the natural world around us, or just ask the right questions, and forecast what will happen next. I know what will happen next. You do? Well, yeah, I have the episode script. (laughs) Okay then, well, maybe you can predict who our first guest is. Warren Hatch is the CEO of Good Judgment Incorporated. It's a private company that grew out of a research project on super forecasting. A prediction is when you assert something will happen. And you can assert something will happen by reading goat entrails or or just pulling something out of the air. A forecast is when we're much more probabilistic about it and not deterministic. We forecast all the time. If you make a decision, you are making a choice about you're going to take an action or not to get something that you want or not. So in a sense, you're making a forecast every time you make a decision. The better decision you can make is going to mean you're going to be applying a better forecasting process to make it. And a super forecaster is somebody who is very skilled at applying that process to all kinds of events around the world, including finance, including global risks, including which line I should get at at Dwayne Reed. The book Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction came out in 2015. In it, University of Pennsylvania professor Philip Tetlock and his co-author, Dan Gardner, explain why certain people are good at predicting high-stakes world events. They also profile some of these real-life super forecasters, people like Warren Hatch. It turns out some people have innate characteristics that make them better. They're good at pattern recognition. They are actively open-minded, meaning, hey, if new information comes in, do you change your mind? Some people don't. Good forecasters will. Super forecasters always will. But here's the thing is that anybody, whether they have those characteristics or not, can get better through practice. That's really what makes it work. 
Hatch is also in the business of identifying other super forecasters who will be able to give reliable advice to their clients, mostly finance companies. He says these super forecasters come from all over, but they have certain qualities in common. And these qualities make them remarkably good at predicting events in finance, politics, and global markets. They are all typically experts in at least one area. And many of them, this is my own background, I came out of finance, a lot of them are from finance, a lot of them are policy analysts, many of them are software engineers. What they all have in common though is they're experts at forecasting. They've built up that track record as very skilled generalists who can very efficiently distill a lot of conflicting information into a number and a comment. Just like on the game show Jeopardy, you can try out to see if you happen to have those perfect combination of skills. We have a public forecasting site where anyone can go. And what we do is every year we will identify the top 0.5%. And how do we define that? In three key ways. The first is their score. They need to have a, a terrific, reliable score, and typically over at least a year, sometimes two years, that shows that they have been set apart from the rest of the forecasting population there. We also look for them to make comments, and the third thing is being collegial. That means we can operate well as a team and deliver the best results possible. It's a pretty rigorous process. It's not easy. But anybody is able to join, and we get people from all over the world. In his book, Super Forecasters, Tetlock talks a lot about the outside-inside view. That idea originated with economist and psychologist Daniel Kahneman. Kahneman explains that the inside view focuses on the factors of a specific situation. The outside view puts the situation in historical context compares it to similar situations, and comes up with a probability based on that. Hatch gives an example. Imagine you're at a wedding, right? And you have the misfortune to sit next to a super forecaster who nudges you in the ribs and says, so how long do you think this one's gonna last? Most people, after they get over their horror, will say, well, it's a match made in heaven. Look around, it's a happy couple. This will last forever. Well, now imagine you have the worst luck of sitting next to a super forecaster for a hundred weddings who asks you the same question. When you come back in a few years, not all of them are gonna make it. Some percentage will make it. And that percentage is gonna be a function of the base rate. Looking at the couple, how happy they are on the day of the wedding, that's taking the inside view. Comparing the divorce rate among similar couples from similar demographics, that's the outside view. So when somebody asks you, will this marriage make it? What you should do is start with this outside view and say, well, you know, I'm going to start at 50% because that's what the base rate is for marriages. You want to apply the same process everywhere else. Super forecasters tend to use data from comparable situations, as well as the specifics of the ones they're looking at. And they'll use the same approach of quantifying probability to make a simple or a complex prediction. Their clients are mostly in finance, and they rely on them to accurately forecast moves in the market. 
where we have something to offer is to quantify events that will impact the markets that are not otherwise already quantified. For instance, what is the pace at which the Fed is going to normalize its balance sheet? That is super consequential to markets. And being able to have insight into how quickly they're going to drain liquidity has immense value for anybody in the markets. Another well-known forecasting theory in economics and politics is the brainchild of author, trader, and mathematician Nassim Taleb, the unpredictability of the black swan event. Taleb's writing claims that certain events defy prediction, and since we can't prepare for them, we need to build our society in a way that makes us resilient in the face of them. The original idea of the black swan was swans were white. That's just a reality of nature. Until someone went to Western Australia and discovered black swans. So something which was thought to be impossible and didn't exist turned out to be true after all. And Nassim Taleb used this metaphor in his book about black swans to describe events which came out of the blue. That's Max King, a fund manager turned journalist. Last year, he wrote an article in Money Week arguing that black swans rarely exist in reality. King says they are predictable if you know where to look. My point is to say that if you look hard enough and you have the right contacts and don't spend your entire time staring at a screen, you can see these things coming. Real black swans really are very rare and much, much less as unpredictable than people make out. King says that in order to see major events coming, you need to be out in the world, talking to people beyond your bubble. One of my favorite sayings is John le Carre, the novelist, and he says, a desk is a dangerous place from which to view the world. He was applying to spycraft, but it applies equally well to financial services. But you must always be looking for these outlying events, not spending your time staring at a screen or talking only to financial people. Major events people considered black swans when they happened, things like the dot-com bubble, the 2008 crash, or Brexit, should have been more widely predicted, according to King. Professional investors suffer from groupthink more than others because if you steer away from the crowd and you get it wrong, you get fired. If you stay with a crowd and the whole crowd is wrong, you know, you're safe. And that's why, really, contrarian investors tend to be unemployable in organizations. So, of course, we had to ask, what potential surprises does he see coming now? Inflation might have seen a bit of a black swan, but you know, the big surprise last year was that bond yields didn't soar through the ceiling when it was obvious inflation was picking up. And I think a lot of investors are still failing to adapt to that. They're not realizing that actually bond yields, if they were going to go up, have probably gone up by now. And, you know, OK, they might go a bit higher. But you know, we're, not, we're not going to see bond yields up to 7% or 5%. King's advice, question the crowd and look for the outliers. It's bluster, it's politics, but once the media catches hold of something, the myth tends to be self-perpetuating. You need to have the sort of mind which says, this needs investigation, don't take it for granted. Let's go and speak to some people who really know their stuff. Coming up after the break, the field of econophysics says the patterns that occur in nature can be used to forecast the unpredictable behavior of markets. Could the way ice breaks in an avalanche warn us of something like the whole meme stock craze? Stay tuned. This message comes from Viking. 
committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we talked about ways to predict the unpredictable that involved asking the right questions and talking to people on the ground. But some experts in the relatively new field of econophysics are asking whether we can make financial predictions by studying the natural world. Econophysics is this field that takes inspiration from physics and tries to apply it to economic problems. Jennifer Jun is assistant professor of philosophy at Duke University, as well as a faculty fellow at the Center for the History of Political Economy. She studies the history of economic thought. Where you usually see this is in trying to figure out, are there going to be bubbles? Are there going to be crashes? So part of that motivation is predictive. We want to know when the next crash is coming. So Econophysics says, look, it seems like we can model this data using some of the formal tools from physics, usually statistical physics, and apply them to this new context. Jean-Philippe Bouchot is a physicist who heads the research team at the French hedge fund CFM. Econophysics was formally born in the early 90s when physicists started thinking that all the new theories of complex systems like turbulence, like understanding avalanches, understanding big things that can happen even if there's only a small trigger was clearly going to have some impact elsewhere. And so we thought that maybe finance and economics was a natural field for us to go into. And the, the second thing that happened is that data became available. Quality data on financial price time series that resembled a lot uh, time series that we were used to. A time series is just a sequence of data points that occur in successive order over some period of time. Some people study quantum mechanics and electrons and material science and so on. Others study what's called statistical physics, so a lot of systems that are governed by noise and have all sorts of interesting properties. And economics as well is a very big you know, theme, and there are many different things that economists do, field experiments and law and finance and so on. But there's an intersection between the two fields that is clear. Bouchot and his colleagues have created models based on patterns in the natural world, things like watching how molecules move in freezing ice, to predict events like the recent rise in inflation. Last year, the physicist Giorgio Parisi won the Nobel Prize in Physics for studying exactly these kinds of patterns. The flight of a flock of starlings, the movement of glaciers, or a special type of magnetized metal alloy called spin glass, which scientists use to observe how molecules arrange themselves based on their positive or negative charges. Using this approach, Bouchot says he was able to predict the current rise in inflation long before it happened. The COVID crisis hits. There are policies to try to avoid the economy going haywire. And we did that in June 2020 and came up with a model, which is a kind of proof of concept model. I mean, here I should state right away that econophysics is not 
yet at maturity. What was surprising to us is that we simulated the economy, the, the our fictitious economy, and imposed a COVID crisis. So drop of demand, drop of supply, policy steps in, tries to save the economy. What happens afterwards? And what we found is that there was inflation. You know, it was June 2020, and we thought, well, this is interesting. And we started having a dialogue with our model. And within our model, we understood very clearly why there could be inflation. So, of course, there's a lot of other phenomena that were not in our uh, model, like, for example, the supply chain problems that we experience now. But there was a clear mechanism by which inflation would follow the types of policies that we were witnessing. According to Bouchot, there's no traditional economic theory that can predict sudden anomalies like COVID or the 2008 crash. And even if econophysics for now is imprecise, he thinks it's better than being surprised by unexpected events. The problem of knowing when and what is the amplitude is much more difficult. But I think that you're better off knowing what can happen than believing in the model as I was mentioning earlier, where nothing surprising can happen. The problem is that the models that are used by traditional classical economics method are very bad. Classical economics predicts that such events cannot be predicted because everything that's known and that's knowable is already in prices and already taken into account by people, by the system as a whole. But I think this is a completely flawed view of the world. Bouchot thinks the way we've traditionally viewed our economy, in up and down cycles, isn't the right way to frame things. The economy is much closer to this idea of ecologies that are extremely fragile and prone to mass extinction, if you want, than this idea of a rocking horse going up and down, but always around the same equilibrium. And I think that what's fundamentally wrong about economics thinking is the idea that we're oscillating a, a around a given equilibrium. This field of study looks at financial crises as part of a fluctuating system rather than as extraordinary events. Here's econophysicist and author Christoph Schinkes. Financial crises are very difficult to predict because we expect something. We expect the normality of the returns of, on financial markets. Then you have suddenly something that is different. Then it's like, oh, wow, that's a crisis. That's a huge variation in relation to what I expected. So I cannot predict that. But actually, the perspective of econophysics is that there is no financial crisis. They are actually all part of the system. Bouchot says econophysics modeling could be used to predict the next meme stock or investing fad. This is an extreme case. And, you know, and people would wave that away saying, oh, yeah, this is an extreme case. But in normal conditions, this, this is not how it works. But it's not true. Every day there's a little GameStop in the making that you normally don't see. You know, it's like earthquakes. A little earthquake is no different from a large earthquake. It's just... Of course, the larger quake is bigger, but it's fundamentally the same mechanism. It's the same story. And I think that in the case of GameStop, you've seen a magnitude 8 event, but it's no different from what happens on an everyday basis where you don't even feed it and you don't even make the headlines of anything. But it doesn't mean that things are normal. Things are really affected by what people do. And the impact story is very important to understand what's going on in markets on a day-by-day -day level. 
So Stephanie, you told me that economics has always had a bit of physics envy. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that economists like to view the study of economics and the discipline as really, you know, kind of separate from the social sciences. They want to imagine economics as a a hard science, something more akin to physics, one of the natural sciences. And so you've seen over the course of, you know, the last many decades, economic papers that are written that use fewer and fewer words and more and more mathematical symbols. And, you know, you could pick up one of the top journals in economics and be hard pressed to read very much of it unless you're a real specialist. And people will say things like, you know, is this an economics journal or is this a physics journal? And you said that idea even goes back to Adam Smith. Well, yeah, I mean, economists try to, you know, uncover sort of universal laws, looking for kind of Newtonian ways to understand the inner workings of the economy, as if there are these discoverable kind of laws that once you identify them, it helps you kind of in a mechanical way, understand the functioning of the economy as a whole. But so far, uh, the social sciences haven't been able to square up with, you know, the, the natural sciences and achieving any kind of like predictable formula, right? Well, I mean, there are always people who will publish something claiming to have discovered a new pattern, a new way of understanding or predicting something. And of course, you know, as economists have trended closer and closer to trying to sort of replicate physics and other hard sciences, what you've seen are other social sciences like political science or sociology trying to look more like economics. Meanwhile, economics is trying to look more like physics. So this is cutting across disciplines. Not everyone is convinced that these physics-based models translate to good economic predictions. Professor Jun explains one of the critiques out there. I mean, I think there are some general worries that you might have about forecasting broadly. So a lot of econophysics projects are motivated initially by data fitting. So I have a bunch of data. I want to find the model that gets that pattern. You can overfit things. You can fit things improperly. In other words, just because your conclusion fits a pattern, that doesn't mean it caused the pattern. Social economist Blair Fix says the models used in econophysics don't work because a microexample doesn't necessarily translate to macro phenomenon. You can reduce a complex system to small pieces, but you can't always build a complex system from those small pieces. Fix quotes the physicist Philip Anderson, who puts it simply, more is different. But John says we should still be open to these new approaches. I don't think we should dismiss econophysics just right out of hand because there's nothing inherently incoherent about the idea that there might be analogies between physics and economics, or that the tools of physics could help us out in economics. Bouchot agrees. Maybe you can argue that COVID is a, is a real big shock. You can argue that an earthquake in Japan is really impacting the infrastructure and the factories and so on. And this is something that happens and nothing, there's nothing against that. On the other hand, if you have events like 1987 or 2008, where there's no real reason for anything to happen and still something happens, in any case, we need a better economic theory of what are the consequences of economic policy. It's really important to understand the unintended consequences. 
if you have a framework that allows you to generate things that you haven't thought about, then you start installing a dialogue between yourself and your model and ask questions and have answers to your questions. And this is, I think, very fruitful to think about these complex systems like the economy. Humans are notoriously bad at making predictions. We tend to assume that however things are now, they're just going to project that way out into the future. Our desire for control and our anxiety about the future makes us seek out models that can tell us what's going to happen next. Maybe that's an impossible goal we'll never reach. Or maybe someday, through diagnostic questions, keeping our ears to the ground, or watching the murmurations of starlings, that's what they call those cool flight patterns, it'll be more like forecasting the weather. Mostly right. Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a review. As you probably know, it's the best way for other listeners to discover us. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question you'd like to ask us in an upcoming mailbag episode, drop us a line or send us a voicemail at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Warren Hatch, Max King, Jennifer Jun, Christoph Schinkus, and John Philippe Bouchot. To learn more about forecasting, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Jeremy Olshan. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch produced by Best Case Studios. Devin Maverick-Robbins and Suzanne Myers are our producers, and our associate producer is Hannah Leibowitz-Lockhart. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer, and the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. This episode was mixed by Katie Ferguson. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.